It's a great song to launch into the series we're about to start. It sets the theme well. Let me pray. Father, be with us as we look at your scriptures, the words that you wrote through the Apostle John. Open our hearts by the power of your Spirit to your word that we might glorify you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was growing up, there were a lot of American TV shows that I watched. Um, and through those shows, through various shows, I don't know how, I can't remember any specific moment, but I kept hearing about Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, I knew from television, was a traitor. So the reality is he was actually a major general with George Washington, quite a successful major general, trusted very much by Washington. But for some reason he decided to defect and join the British in the American Revolutionary War. And he ended up leading British-led soldiers, British soldiers, against the American revolutionaries, against men that he had previously commanded. And so Benedict Arnold in America was a byword for a traitor. He betrayed George Washington. He betrayed his people. Now, you might call your kid Benedict. We've got a Benedict in our church. But nobody that I know calls their kid Judas. Judas Iscariot. Because if Benedict Arnold's bad, particularly in America, well, Judas Iscariot, he is the betrayer. And betrayal, you've, we've probably all been betrayed at some level. Betrayal is the worst sin at a personal level. You trust somebody. You open your life to somebody. You work with them. You share with them. You give to them. You enjoy them. You love them in relationship. And then one day you find that they've turned against you and they are now your enemy. Betrayal is perhaps the hardest sin to forgive. We feel the injustice. Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas Iscariot followed Jesus for years. He lived with him. He heard him teach. He watched what Jesus did. He was engaged in the ministry of Jesus. He was trusted to look after the funds of the disciples, the money bag. And in today's message, today's part of the Bible, Judas turns his back on Jesus and betrays him. He sides with the enemy. He not only betrays him, he hands him over to death. It is so wrong. And therefore you think, well, it's quite a downer to start this sort of launch into 2020 as the year kicks off. 2020, let's talk about betrayal. 2017, we actually started a series through John's Gospel. Our theme that year was Hear, Believe, Obey. And we spent all year in term time going through John chapter 1 to 12. Then we've done little bits of John every year. And we've come now to what they call the passion narrative in John's Gospel. That's the story of Jesus' arrest, betrayal, arrest, trial and crucifixion. And we're going to be with the passion narrative all the way up to Good Friday. Um,
as part of our series, Give Thanks. Now you think, well, it starts with betrayal. That's hardly giving, is it? There's not much to be thankful for in betrayal. This series I've titled The Greatest Gift. Because that's actually what we're... Oh, shush up, Siri. <laughs> Siri. This is the greatest gift. And actually, I do think it fits in well with our thing. Because if we understand the passion narrative, and even understand today's passage, the betrayal, we will see God's heart to give. And we can't help but be thankful and be transformed by that ourselves. The first step that sets the... Um, chain of events of this passion narrative is obviously the betrayal of Jesus. So it's kind of like the passage we're at today. You've kind of got to go through this bit because this is like the trigger that sets the real story off, as often happens in a narrative. But actually, this trigger, this horror, is a little foretaste of the complete story of Jesus' passion. There is something far more powerful at play here than simply betrayal. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. The city is astir. It's the Passover feast, the annual Passover feast. And Jesus has just shared a Passover meal with his disciples in an upper room. We call it the Last Supper. At that meal, they remembered how God saved his people, Israel, the children of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. He delivered them. And particularly the last of the ten plagues of Egypt, they remember... God instructed the Israelites to slaughter a lamb, a perfect lamb, and take the blood of that lamb and paint it over the doorpost of their house to protect them. Because that night, the angel of the Lord went through Egypt and took the life of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, except those Israelites who had slaughtered the lamb and painted the blood over the doorpost of their house. And so they remember this meal every year. And they do it by eating as they ate. All those years ago, they eat that lamb. They eat a lamb at a Passover feast. And they remember that God saved them out of slavery. Jesus at that meal says, it's all about me. Do this in remembrance of not 2,000 years ago or whatever it was. Not Exodus, but do this in remembrance of me. Judas leaves to go and betray Jesus in the middle of the night. And Jesus goes on, as we've seen, to teach his disciples he says, you've got to love one another. The world's going to see you understand me by your love. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, the comforter, the advocate, who will be with you. And I want you to abide in me, to stay in me in faith. And then he prays for his glory, his glory which is about to be revealed. He prays for his disciples and he prays for those who are going to believe through his disciples. And then... It's time to leave the city of Jerusalem. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. It's late at night. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. Because Jesus often met there with his disciples. It was one of their hangouts, a place of peace, a place of teaching. It was a garden. It was familiarity and security. In that garden, we know from the other Gospels, Jesus prayed, Father, Father, take this cup from me, but not your will, but mine be done. It was a time of great anguish in the garden for Jesus. It was a time of confusion and doziness for the disciples as they slept in this comfortable, familiar 
place. It's deep night. The disciples are sleeping. They've got no expectations. Jesus is in anguish, knowing what is coming. It is the calm before the storm. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers, a cohort, the Romans, and some officials, temple guards perhaps from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Roman soldiers, we imagine, to keep the peace because this could turn violent, this could get ugly, arresting officials who really wanted Jesus, led by Judas. They wanted him dead. Now, how many police does it take to arrest one man? Well, petty criminal, a DUI, maybe one or two cops. What if it's a hardened criminal? Or what if it's a gang member? Well, maybe you'll send four or five police to arrest that one man. What if it's El Chapo? What if it's Osama bin Laden? Well, then you may send a whole cohort, almost a whole army, many, many people to arrest that person. It completely depends upon the level of perceived threat. So here we have a rabbi in a garden outside the city late at night with his mates. What's the threat level? Well, they obviously consider him a big threat. The world comes against Jesus. Soldiers, officers, lamps, lights, weapons. He must capitulate. He must fold before them. Surely he must be afraid. The evil forces enter the dark night and into the garden, but Jesus remains totally in control. He takes the initiative. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, went out and asked them, who is it you want? He walks out to them. He's not hiding. Jesus, the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. They think they're coming to arrest Jesus, but Jesus sets about arresting them. Jesus says, I am he. Actually, in the original, he says, who you? Jesus, the Nazarene, more literally, they replied. I, I am, said Jesus. That's a literalistic translation. It's a phrase that he uses five other times in John's Gospel. And every time Jesus uses that phrase, I, I am, there is a hint or a suggestion of his divinity. Jesus appears to disciples on the Lake of Galilee walking on water. Well, that's pretty freaky. We still make, people still make fun of it. The disciples are terrified to see Jesus walking on the water. But he said to them, I, I am. Don't be afraid. The Jewish leaders at another occasion in John chapter 8 were challenging Jesus' authority. Who are you? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I, I am. 
What does he mean? Well, I tell you, what do they think? At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. There's another three incidences, all suggesting Jesus' divinity. In Isaiah chapter 40 to 55, numerous times in Isaiah's prophecy, God uses these same words in the Greek translation for himself. I, I am. It's a hint of the divine name, what we say Yahweh or some would say Jehovah. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I, I am. Who are you? Who are you looking for? Well, I'll tell you who you're looking for. Jesus of Nazareth, I, I am. These brave souls, this gathered mob with their weapons and their torches. When Jesus said, I, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. At a word, at the self-identification of Jesus, they fall to the floor in fear. They do not threaten Jesus, these brave souls in the middle of the night. Jesus threatens them and they fear the threat. I can imagine, oh, I've got to go arrest Jesus. Oh, I don't want to go. You see the size, oh, no, not that guy. I, don't. I can imagine them going into the garden feeling, this is going to be okay. There's a whole pile of us. We're going to get in one man, one man, one man, one man, one man. Who are you looking for? Jesus. I, I am. Who's in control? They'd heard the stories and they are afraid. Jesus is in control in the darkness despite the bitter despair of betrayal, despite the Romans, despite the temple guards and the officials, Jesus is always in control. Again he asks them, Who is it that you want? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I I am. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. Can you see this? This is Judas's betrayal is not the story. It's just the trigger for Jesus to offer himself freely as the greatest gift of all. Peter doesn't understand what's going on. The disciples hardly ever understood until Jesus rose from the dead. But I tell you what he does understand. He feels the threat. All these people, the lights, the fear, and Peter's adrenaline is running high because where did all this come from? I've just been in a groggy sleep. And, and Peter hits fight, flight, or freeze. And Peter being impetuous, Peter chooses fight. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And now there's tension, yeah? Now there's tension. <laughs> You've got all these soldiers and guards. They're afraid. They've got weapons. They've just stood up again. You've got one of Jesus' disciples, this impetuous guy, Peter, out of fear grabs his sword and starts striking one of the temple officials. And there's blood. Whoosh! You can hear the clash of metal. Everybody brings their swords out. The tension's high. This could explode. It could be a slaughter. Jesus commanded Peter, 
put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Who's in control? Literally, cast your sword into your sheath. This is not my way. This is not my Father's purpose. I do not come with sword. I do not come with violence. This is my moment of glory and you will not take it away. Jesus enters his glory through sacrifice. And just as he was in the garden praying, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, yet not your will, but my will, but yours be done. So now he says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It will not be taken from me. And seeing his submission, perhaps like cruel men who finally get a caged bear, now they feel safe and they start tormenting. They seize the opportunity. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and bound him. Gotcha! And Jesus, betrayed and arrested and bound, is handed over to the authorities. But, uh, more truly, Jesus willingly, doing his Father's will, hands himself over a sacrificial offering. But why? Why would you just hand yourself over to cruel men? He who commands the angel armies. Is there a greater purpose here? Well, let's go back to verse 7. They asked him, who is it you want? Jesus and Nazarene, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, that I, I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. None of them is, will perish. And that's true in the physical and temporal sense. Jesus says, arrest me and let these guys go. You'll be happy. I'm going to protect them. But it's every bit as true in the spiritual and eternal sense. Jesus came to save his people from these sins. Take me that they may go free. Let me bear this punishment, this wrath, that they may be true. He does that by freely offering himself up as the Son of God, as the only righteous man, as the true Israelite, to bear his Father's wrath against our sin, against our rebellion, in place of those he will save, to be the substitute Sacrifice. Verse 12. The detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas was the one who would advise the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Interesting little note there. Annas was the power broker. He was high priest by designation from AD 5 to AD 16. And then the Roman governor, who was the head of Pontius Pilate, said, no, you're too powerful. 
But the high priest is high priest for life. So he deposed Annas. And what Annas then arranged for with the governor was for his son to be high priest and then 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 his son-in-law Caiaphas to be high priest. Annas is the power broker. He's pulling the strings. So they take him to Annas first. But, but Caiaphas, the son-in-law who was the high priest that year, Caiaphas had actually spoken about Jesus before. You see, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead just outside Jerusalem. It was causing a stir. The religious officials were like, what's going on? So if we go all the way back to chapter 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. He's just risen. Lazarus has just come back from three days dead. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation, our status. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Let's just kill this Jesus fellow. That's better than all of us to get the wrath of the Romans. He's a smart guy, the high priest of Israel. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for, this is us, for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. One man would die for the people, for the scattered children of God, not just any man, the very Son of God, who offers himself willingly. I am the gift, I am the sacrifice who has come to save my people from their sins. So here we are beginning our journey through the passion of Jesus, the greatest gift. The greatest gift overshadows the betrayal. This is not about the betrayal of Jesus. This is about the offering of Jesus, which comes about through sinful, wicked human action. And as we finish this series on Good Friday, as Jesus dies on the cross of Calvary, again, again, the gift overshadows the horror. In emptiness, Jesus wins a victory. It's a day of grace. It's a day where sin is defeated. And on the third day, death is conquered. The grave is defeated. The greatest gift of all, offered by God the Father to meet our greatest need. To be saved from our sins, to be reconciled with God. Jesus faces humanity's horror. Jesus faces humanity's evil. It begins with that most personal gut-wrenching sin and of betrayal. And it ends with humanity's horror that they would crucify somebody who was righteous in the most cruel death, 
Jesus bears it all. And I think there's real hope here. As we watch our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. In that place of security which is overwhelmed by a flood of horror. Because this happens in our life. In our places of security. Not realising we're in the calm before the storm. And the way of this world can come and just overwhelm us in a moment. But Jesus is Lord. He's in control. And we don't always understand the journey that our God takes us on. But we can be sure that Satan, though he throw all things against us, is not in control and is not the victor. That there is hope, that there is forgiveness, that there is reconciliation. My hope as we go through this series is that we constantly see God's gracious gift to us with Jesus. And that little by little even, maybe in a radical moment, but little by little we'll be changed by that. Maybe radically, if you don't already know Jesus, you'll be changed by that. And we'll accept that gift for ourselves. And know fullness of life. And be changed that we might be people who give and are full of thanks to our saving God. Amen.